Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Coming up on today's show, we bring together three political strategists, one from the Conservatives, one from the NDP, and one from the Liberals to talk about the campaign, how it's gone, and what they're expecting to see over the final days, and of course, on Monday night. And a lot of analysts will tell you, we're about to hit a production wall, setting us up for all-time oil prices. It's the reality of oil demand versus the aspirational goals of climate change. Looking forward to this next hour or so as we dig into the federal election campaign with some insiders, some strategists, some people who follow this very, very closely, and I'm sure we'll have some great insights for us as we go into the final days. Of course, we cast our ballots on Monday. So we're going to have a bit of a roundtable here with some political strategists from across the spectrum and get their take on how things have gone. We have Colin McDonald joining us, who is a liberal strategist with Navigator. Good morning, Colin. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, Sally Hauser is with us. She is an NDP strategist. Hi, Sally. Good morning, Shay. And Melissa Cowett joins us, who is a conservative strategist and writer. Um, Melissa, thanks for being here today. Good morning, Shay. Thanks for having me. So let's just go around the horn here. We'll start, uh, well, we'll go with Melissa first up here. Uh, Just give us your general take on what we've seen over the past four and a half weeks as we get closer to Election Day. Anybody surprise you? Anybody disappoint you? Or has it played out the way you expected? Sure. So, yeah, first of all, I can't believe that we're only days away from the election now. It seems like at the start of it, it always seems like it's going to be forever. And now it's just a couple of days away. Um, I think that the the leader that has surprised me um, the most, um, and not just because he's my guy, but Aaron O'Toole has really um, been a strong, strong candidate this election. He has come out and been not only in his sort of appearance and his tone has been a really strong leader, but he's also done a lot of things that conservative leaders in the past have been reluctant to do. And I guess time will tell about whether that strategy was the right one or not, but he's really tried to take the the party a bit more to the center. Yes. He has stood up to uh, some of the common misconceptions about the party in terms of stances on social issues um, he has not presented a platform that is sort of doom and gloom and cutting spending. In fact, healthcare spending increases, transfers to the provinces under conservative platform. Um, and so he's had a relatively gas-free campaign, which I think as a conservative is just like a huge... Um, so it's, it's, it's awesome to just see that and see that brand of conservatism on the national stage. Sally, your take? Um O'Toole definitely has been trying to move the party closer to the centre, as you observe um, from your NDP position. Um, How has the campaign played out in your mind? Well, it's been an interesting one, and we always kind of, you know, through campaigns, talk about the campaign arc. And and although campaigns always do seem long, I think, particularly if you're working on them, long hours and things like that. Uh, But, I mean, this is the kind of campaign that's legally allowed. Uh, and while, you know, you have the very dominant aspect of, of COVID uh, throughout all of it, uh, I think, you know, a lot of people during this campaign, they're, you know, um, they're focused on other things, frankly. And it's really been an 
challenge for all the leaders to try to really make it through that day-to-day of people, you know, back to yeah. school and, and COVID numbers riding and things like that. I, I think... Um, you know, the, the Liberals started with a kind of a, you know, trying to wedge on the vaccine issue. And Trudeau struggled to really tell Canadians why we were having an election two years early and, and what it was about. Um, I think both for the Liberals and, and the Conservatives, you've seen them kind of change up their messaging a fair bit over the course of the campaign. Uh, I think the NDP has been incredibly disciplined. And my, my background is in political communication, so I always love to see that discipline of message. Uh, but that really kind of, you know, there's not much difference between the Liberals and the Conservatives. Uh, and and frankly, um, Justin Trudeau has had six years to get some of the progressive things he's promised over and over again done, and he hasn't gotten the job done. I think the challenge for Trudeau has been that, you know, in 2015 and 2019 even, you could still kind of do that, that hopey, changey message of here are the things that I will do uh, if elected. That's a lot harder to do when you've been governing uh, for, six, for years. six years. And so that kind of Teflon, I think, wore off the liberals uh, a little bit. Um, and you really have to kind of run on, on a record then, which uh, I think they've kind of struggled to do. I think you know, months ago, myself and a lot of pundits would have said, yeah, it's probably likely that the, the, you know, the Liberals are going to kind of stomp their way to uh, a majority, or at least be very, very comfortable with minority. Uh, and that hasn't been the case. Yeah, I think the timing of it, it was a bit of a gamble. Um, you know, you want to get ahead of the fourth wave of COVID, uh, you know, kind of have an election when it's people have had a summer and they feel really good about things. Um, and then but you find election day kind of smack dab, and, and particularly on the prairies where we are. Uh, we are um, Got some really issues. Smack dab in the problem <laughs> being on fire. Yeah, exactly. Colin, she's talking about your guy, um, you know, and he did start off with a lead. He lost it. But he's regained it. Um, he's back in the lead as we head into this final weekend. How do you think um, Trudeau's conducted himself throughout this uh, past month or so? Yeah, no, I think. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, we, we, we're all going to going to agree that it's been an interesting campaign. It's been a campaign of phases or a campaign of waves. Um, you know, we saw Mr. O'Toole. I think, to his credit, came out more prepared and more disciplined than than we would have we would have thought. I would say that he's been relatively one note and kind of has been unable to build off of that uh, over the last couple of weeks. I think the prime minister has experienced a lot of. Um, it has been a challenging campaign from the perspective of some of the noise that has surrounded it, and I mean very specifically by that, some of the protests, uh, some of the unseemly uh, behavior, some of the vitriol that's been directed towards him uh, and to some of his candidates, in a way that I think most Canadians would agree is not reflective of how we typically like to conduct our election campaigns and how we typically like to uh, see our public discourse uh, taken on. And I think that has been a real challenge, but I think the Prime Minister has shown uh, real steadiness through this. You know, he is a he is a seasoned campaigner. Um, he has put forward his message, which is one that is in direct contrast, despite Mr. O'Toole sort of starting in the leadership campaign as a SOCON uh, and appealing to the SOCONs and then kind of moving around and saying that he wasn't one and, you know, talking about how he was a, he was a conservative leader who would be against the sorts of things that Brian Mulroney would stand for. And then the other day we see Brian Mulroney get trotted out uh, for, a, for a glad-handing campaign event and Stephen Harper is nowhere to be seen. Despite all of that, 
the Prime Minister has still been able to draw a real contrast between uh, the progressive and positive policies that he is he's proposing and his party is proposing, and some of the some other things that Mr. O'Toole wants to do, which there will be an audience for, and folks, mm-hmm. folks listening uh, listening today will have will have different perspectives on which one of those plans is is the one that they prefer. But uh, there has been significant uh, difference between those. And then the last thing I'd say, I guess, in terms of how it's played out, is I think Mr. Singh also came out. Uh, doing quite well. You know, he had started with um, a bit of low expectation in the 2019 campaign and sort of seemed to find his feet. But he also appears to have sold, and, and critically for him, because I, I think uh, this was something that got exposed in, in, in the debate that was, you know, difficult, a, a debate that was difficult and not exactly anybody's favorite debate, I don't think, uh, over the course of our, our time observing politics and, and being engaged yeah. in and working in politics. Uh, Mr. Singh got, you know, a little bit stuck on, on, on some pretty important stuff, and that's the details, right? Uh, and we've seen that kind of that kind of stick over the last few days. He's got a he has a positive message in some ways. He has a proactive message in some ways, and obviously he's youthful and everything else. Um, but he really seemed to lack in any kind of basic understanding of the details, the dollars and cents, uh, and the actual policy proposals that were behind some of the the higher order uh, messaging, and, and that has. I think, caused him some real difficulty over the last, whatever it is, week or so. Yeah, okay. Uh, good stuff, guys. We need to take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about some of the issues and uh, and uh, where we might see things pivot at all going into this final week. So we'll be right back with more after this. We are chatting this hour with Melissa Cowett, a conservative strategist, consultant and writer, Sally Hauser, an NDP strategist, and Colin McDonald, a liberal strategist with Navigator, uh, having a bit of a discussion about the final days of this campaign and what we've seen so far. And Colin mentioned um, the debate. So I'll just put this out to anybody that wants to jump in and get your reaction to the debates in general. They really were lackluster. I mean, most of them are, but this one, I think, was really underwhelming. Do you think anybody managed to take any steps forward or backwards through the debates that we saw? I'll jump in. I mean, I think that we saw... What we saw at the debates was just sort of a demonstration of how some of these leaders act when they're under pressure and when they're um, sort of backed into a corner and asked to defend some of their records. Um, when we look at uh, the Liberal leader Justin Trudeau's performance during the debate, he had he's the one that's been able to govern for six years. He's the one that's been able to come to the table with a record. And he came off in that debate as really defensive in many ways. Um, he had to answer a lot of tough questions mm-hmm. from the Green Party leader, Anna Mae Paul, who really questioned him on his record on um, women's empowerment and some of the things that have happened throughout his mandate. He took a lot of heat from the NDP leader as well on things like climate change, on things like ND, um, Indigenous leadership. And so it was you know, he was he was really in the hot seat and having to answer for a lot of the, the things that have happened over the past six years. And and of course, all of the leaders keep coming back to the question, why are we in an election right now? Why are we going to the polls right now? Um, I have to say, though, the Green Party leader, she's she's Adam A. Paul is not going to elect people in Alberta and she's sure. um, not going to probably elect a lot of seats across the country. But I think people should know about her and what a strong performance that she had and and what a great perspective that she brought to the debate because she really did hold her own and forced a lot of the leaders to um, sort of answer for, for some of the things that they've said and done. And I just thought that she brought a really, 
uh, outstanding perspective to that stage. And so I'm glad that she was there for yeah, sure. Yeah, um, I think, Melissa, a lot of people agree with you. I think she conducted herself very well. And it was an introduction for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, as first impressions go, it was it was very favorable, I think, for her. But like you say, uh, will it translate into votes? It's a bit of a long shot. Um, Colin, your thoughts on what we saw in those debates? Anything leap out at you or was it sort of ho-hum? I was pretty unimpressed by the format, which I think is not a not a, a, a position uniquely held by me. Um, I, I thought there was a few there were a few opportunities where each of the leaders actually had uh, had a chance to really either shine or or that we were about to get into a spirited debate. Uh, and then for some reason, reasons that are uh, I guess decisions that are made by smarter people than I am. Uh, those those debates weren't allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. We were sort of they were sort of taken away from us, and things moved on. Uh, I, I think one of the interesting things about the debates, though, always is there's we always watch for the in the moment uh, punch in the chin or the, the 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 real sort of defining moment from from the debate. And sometimes infrequently, but sometimes you can see it in the moment. Uh, other times it plays out over the course of the last couple of days. And I think one of the interesting things to come out of it is uh, you know the 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 question that was put to Monsieur Blanchet in the first moment, he's not a leader or that's not a party we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today, I would guess, but um, he had been suffering a relatively uh, difficult campaign so far, and, and uh, you know, both the NDP, the Liberals, uh, and the Conservatives were all looking at Quebec with with different with a different perspective, um, and they seem to uh, he seems to have done from a Quebec audience's perspective, perhaps not from not, not from mine, but from a Quebec audience's perspective, he seems to have really trans uh, translated that yeah. first response of his into some into some into into a changing dynamic on the ground in Quebec over the last week. Yeah, he was quite impressive, I have to say. Um, Sally, your guy is the most likable leader. All the polls always say that people like Jugmeet Singh. Did he? Live- up to the billing in those debates? I think he did. And, you know, people who follow politics, so a lot of us will always say, you know, we there, there should be more debate about policy. There should be more time for policy, um, all these things. But that's usually not what debates are about. Uh, I agree it wasn't the best format, but you know what? Every debate I've ever watched in my life, there's been some, some grumblings <laughs> about the format after. Always. I think it's, it's telling that the people that were the most grumbly about it were guided, uh, you know, you have to play the game according to the rules, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, really what is, what the debates do and what they serve to do is leaving people with the impression of the leader. Will they remember any kind of specific policy that was discussed or any of those big hits? Less of that and more, you know, did this person come across as trustworthy? Did this person come across as intelligent? Did this person come across as authentic? Uh, which is something that we've talked a lot about uh, in this election, and I think increasingly in politics, that idea of authenticity. Yeah. Uh, and I think that respect, and Jagmeet Singh absolutely um, uh, did that in, in the debate. People liked him, he remained likable, and, and it was positive for the NDP in that respect. Really quick rapid fire before the news here is just go around the table, uh, putting partisan viewpoints aside. Melissa, who won that debate? Did anybody? Enemy Paul or Aaron O'Toole, I'd say. Okay. Sally? Yeah, I don't know that there was a, a direct answer, but uh, and that often happens in the case, but I, I will say that I think that just one was fair, I don't think it's going after him, but I, I would say he lost it. Colin? Well, I think incumbents always try to come out of a debate uh, unscathed, unscathed and, and moving forward, and I think the Prime Minister accomplished that, so I, I'd give it to him. 
Francois Blanchet, being in Alberta, I know nothing about this guy. I have to say, he was impressive. I, there was something about him. He's appealing as a guy on a stage like that. I mean, we can't even vote for him here, but I thought, he seems like a pretty cool customer. Being about the block leader in the English language debate, I always have a, they don't really have a whole lot. Yeah, they don't really care, right? Yeah, they don't have anything to lose, and I think that came across pretty clearly, uh, especially with Blanchet. You know, I mean, he came out, <laughs> which was kind of startling to say, I have no interest in leading Canada, and, and sort of shows how invested he is in the English language debate, and uh, maybe with the pressure off, he just sort of uh, let fly. Okay, we're going to take a quick break for the 10.30 News. We'll be back and continue this discussion after that. Stay tuned. Continuing our discussion with some political strategists as we take a look at what's going on in the final days of this election campaign. We have with us today Sally Hauser, who's an NDP strategist. We also have Colin McDonald, a liberal strategist with Navigator, and Melissa Cowett, who is a conservative strategist and writer. Um, for all of you, and feel free to jump in. There's no conch being passed around, so if you want to jump in at any time, go ahead. I, I, I want the perspective of political strategist and let's just be cold-hearted anything to win political strategists when what happened in alberta this week we've seen some of the party leaders justin trudeau talking about it again on the campaign trail today um it was a ticking time bomb that i think the conservatives were hoping wouldn't go off until at least the 21st but it has as a strategist running a campaign, how do you take full advantage of what's going on in Alberta to help your guy or to not have it completely derail what you're trying to do? Um, I'll, I'll go first, uh, if, if, if the others don't mind. Um, if I was a federal conservative uh, strategist, I would be tearing my hair out uh, right about now. Uh, <laughs> And we're we're in, uh, I'm, I'm talking today from uh, from Saskatchewan, and it's uh, in a similar situation uh, here. Um, you know, in terms of taking advantage of it, um, you know, obviously the, the liberals and the NDP will say, "Look, this is what a conservative government gets: uh, mismanagement. Right. You know, the wrong decisions at the wrong time, delay, lack of leadership, uh, all those things." Uh, I think it actually stands to benefit the NDP in many ways uh, more than liberals, because even though you can talk about uh, health protocols and everything like that being down at the provincial level and not the federal, there's still that kind of mood and tone and thought. And I think what I was saying about saying that that gamble of calling the federal election um, as this kind of fourth wave was hitting, particularly on uh, on the prairies, there's still like some ill will towards Trudeau, whether it's justified or not, and the tone uh, and mood. Uh, so, you know, and, and, and on the prairies, you've got a lot of these seats where, you know, uh, less so than Ontario, where, you know, the NDP and the Liberals are kind of competing for um, a lot of votes, and you have those switches in those seats uh, on, on the prairies. Uh, you have a lot of seats where it's that um, real close race between yeah. conservatives uh, and the Democrats. And what you know, kind of the situation in, in Alberta and, and Saskatchewan and the absolute disaster we've seen uh, in, in the kind of less than fair treatment of COVID, what do you know, conservatives to, to switch their vote to somebody else? I don't know about that, but it does ask probably as a suppressant, as a demotivator to get that that vote out. And I think that that's definitely what the, the Liberals and the NDP will be trying to do. Um, Colin, the Liberals definitely talking about it over the past couple of days, ever since the news came out that the, the provincial government had to backtrack on the things they were saying earlier in the summer. Are they taking full advantage of it? Or, I mean, it seems to me like Trudeau's trying to walk a fine line where he doesn't want to come out as 
you know, really trying to take advantage of this because that would be distasteful to a lot of people. But at the same time, he sees the opportunity. I think that's right. I mean, I think the opportunity, it's not just one that's being constructed either. Mr. O'Toole is on the record of praising uh, Premier Kenny for his... um, ill-conceived and dangerous approach to to the pandemic. Um, And and the Prime Minister, and and, and I don't think anybody in this campaign is going to celebrate what is happening in Alberta. You know, I'm not not speaking to you from Alberta today, but I I have colleagues uh, who are in Alberta, and and this is not something that anybody would have wanted to to see happen and not something that anybody is feeling good about. But at the end of the day, it reinforces a couple of very important messages. One of them is the the, the mismanagement uh, and the uh, the lack of attention to fact and science in in favor of pandering to ideological concerns or to uh, fringe elements within uh, with, within the party that frankly Mr. O'Toole doesn't have a very good record on. Again, this is, a, this is a leader who has taken on a bit of a chameleon personality over the last number of years in public life, and that's not something that we can really debate. It's something that's, that's there for the record to see. His, his leadership campaign um, looks almost, his leadership platform, par, par, pardon me, looks almost nothing like the platform he is putting forward today. Uh, that is obvious for everyone why that is. He took advantage of political opportunism uh, in order to, 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 to pander to a certain base within the, within the party to win the leadership, and then immediately flipped on those people uh, and moved over to probably being, you know, Peter McKay light. Probably Peter McKay probably would be blushing at how um, he is trying to, to be Peter McKay on this. And so I think it just speaks to another pattern with Mr. O'Toole, where, you know, yesterday he's going to say Jason Kenney was the greatest premier the pandemic has ever seen, and today he's going to say Jason Kenney had it all wrong, and he can't believe that Jason Kenney wouldn't have taken the steps he needed to take to keep Alberta safe. And that just means that we can't trust Mr. O'Toole on just about anything. Um, Melissa, as a conservative strategist, when something like this happens and drops in in the final days of a campaign, there's no question this is the last thing the conservatives wanted. What do you do? How do you respond? How do you react? How do you try and minimize the damage this can do? Yeah, I mean, I'll just note that a lot of, you know, I see people bringing up um, Aaron O'Toole's support of the the plans in Alberta. Um, a lot of that is from a video that was in October of 2020 uh, when we're facing a very different pandemic situation. So I think it's important to say that. And up, up until a couple of months ago, even the prime minister was yeah. um, was praising Alberta's response to the pandemic. So I, I just think it's important to underscore how quickly situations are changing and how, you know, every single political leader is um, to a certain degree, um, politicizing the pandemic um, when it's convenient for them. Um, in terms of strategizing, I think that if you're in the conservative war room in Ontario, you're really worried because you're just you're you're wondering whether people in Alberta are going to be able to differentiate between the provincial conservatives and the federal conservatives. You're worried about what kind of an impact the PPC is going to have. Um, in taking away votes and what kind of implications that could have for tight ridings and vote splits. And I think you're also worried more broadly. I mean, Alberta is a conservative stronghold. We win seats. We've talked about this many times with really high margins here. But you're also worried about the message that is sent to the rest of the country about conservatism and um, what that says about how a federal government would handle the pandemic and, and and move forward. And so I think that you're you're almost if you're in in the conservative strategy sphere, you're almost more worried about the connections people outside of Alberta are making mm-hmm. between the, the provincial party 
in Alberta and federally. And you're, you're really worried about that in like Montreal, Toronto and um, Vancouver in, in areas where you need to pick up seats. So I think the message just has to be uh, strong. And I think the last thing I'll say is um, there, a lot of Albertans are frustrated right now too. So I just don't know how much they're going to punish the federal conservatives for what the province has done. I think voters are smart and they do recognize the differences and they do recognize that, um, that policies that the federal conservatives have put forward and the plan that the federal conservatives have put forward for Alberta specifically, it leaves the most people um, best off. So I, I think they'll be able to tell the difference. I'm more worried about the implications for the rest of the country in tight riding. Outside of Alberta, yeah. Okay, we're going to squeeze in one last break here and we'll come back and uh, wrap up our discussion right after this. Stay tuned. We're having a discussion with Melissa Cowett, a conservative strategist, consultant, and writer, Sally Hauser, who is an NDP strategist, and Colin McDonald, a liberal strategist with Navigator. Um, just to ask the question here, we're into the final days of this campaign. What does it come down to at this point? So many advanced polls have already been cast. I mean, a lot of people will have their minds made up at this point. So what is the focus of a campaign as you go into this final weekend before voting day? Maybe I'll, I'll jump in there. Uh, I think there's two things, right? So there, there are a lot of people who have voted in advance, but there are still the big day is always, you know, Super Bowl Sunday is yep. still always E-Day itself. Uh, and so uh, coming right on the heels of, of, of the weekend, you want to make sure that you're still driving uh, your message, you're driving your contrast, and you're getting out in front of your voters and your likely voters, and, and both, you know, hopefully trying to convince a few to a few new to new ones to, to vote for you, uh, but then to motivate those who are already, um, who are most of the way there or, or are already there to make sure they actually get out. Uh, and then that's the second piece, is that just really taking the time. This is This is a time that is, you know, for all of us who have worked on campaigns, you know, especially actually at the local level, this last weekend is a really intense period where you're trying to get all your logistics sorted, all your get at the vote machinery ready to go, and make sure you're really, um, you know, you're re- you're really working hard in, in, in advance of what becomes a very very busy uh, day for some folks uh, on election day itself. Yeah, Sally, that's what it comes down to, right? It, anybody that you've managed to pick up in support as the campaign has gone along, now your job is to make sure they actually go out and mark that X for your guy. Absolutely. It's about getting getting the vote out. Uh, the first kind of part, and, and more than half, I guess, of the first kind of two-thirds of the campaign is is more about what we call the air war. That that you know the the big media pitches, the ad buys, the 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 selling you know your platform and your offer and everything like that. Now most people are, are fully baked in terms of how, you know, there's not a lot of people who will be kind of making their mind up in the next two days. Uh, so it's making sure that you have good marks, identifying the support you have, where they are, and getting those votes out to the pool. The, the other thing of the past few days uh, and, and currently still is um, identifying where you need to put your resources. Um, you know, at the beginning of the campaign, you have target ridings, but that can shift over the course of the campaign. Mm-hmm. Maybe a riding that you thought you were absolutely going to win and, and it looked really good uh, is all of a sudden dropped off the list. And a, and a campaign that you didn't think um, you, you were going to win, but you had a great local candidate for whatever reason, they're now really coming up in the polls and it looks like they could take it. So those final days of getting those boots on the ground, the volunteers, campaign staff to the right places that is going to maximize uh, your turnout and, and your seat count. That's a really, really key component in the final days of an election. Melissa, does one party have momentum going into this? Do they have a more motivated base of support that they can be a little more comfortable that they'll 
be so angry or so enthusiastic that there's going to be a better likelihood they turn out, or are they all sort of going to need a big push here? Because a lot of people don't even want this election. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really matter um, how um, how well you've sort of prepared in the last four years. Like my co-panelist here have said, if you're not getting those people out that you've identified, it's, you know, people forget. People have other things going on. They don't, you know, they don't pay attention to politics as much as the four of us um, here do. So it's really just about confirming everybody who said they're going to support you actually goes out and supports you. And I think, um, you know, people don't even realize, like, candidates um, and campaigns are asking people if they need rides to the polls. They're, you know, Mm -hmm. making sure there's volunteers that can go door knock and say, hey, have you voted yet? Um, There's people who are at... Um, scrutineering at voting booths, like trying to get people out. So it's just, it's a lot of that. And it's a lot of just also like, don't make any um, big errors in judgment in the last few days. I mean, don't do anything stupid. Don't say anything stupid. Keep your head down and focus on the ground game. And I mean, Sally mentioned it as well. You're getting real honest with respect to what you can win and what you can't based on the internal um, polling that you have done. So, you know, at the start of the campaign, you might have been super optimistic. Sure. We're going to win all 338 seats. Now it's about, okay, which ones are we actually in the race for? And no offense to some of the other campaigns, but we're not going to pay as much attention to you if we know we can't win because it's all got to be focused on where there's the maximum opportunity for seeking. Exactly. And uh, I'll come right back to you. What are you watching? I'm keeping an eye on Edmonton Centre. Uh, I'm keeping an eye on Edmonton Mill Woods and maybe Calgary Skyview. What will you be watching closely and what's your prediction for Monday night? I am definitely watching those ridings in Alberta. Um I'm watching as well for how we see, I don't want to focus too, too much on the PPC, but I really want to see how the PPC pulls out mm-hmm. um, support in Alberta and Ontario and in and BC as well in the interior, um, whether or not they'll concentrate enough support in ridings to actually win seats, I think is um, yet to be determined, but I really want to see um, what kind of an effect they have uh, in terms of vote splitting and, and how much they take. Uh, at that regional level. Yeah, that, they've definitely uh, they've gained a lot of momentum throughout the course of this campaign. They're a factor, I think. For sure. Um, Sally, of course, we know um, NDP 100% conservative. Uh, not NDP, Saskatchewan 100% conservative in the last election. Do you, do you expect that to hold? What are you looking for to un- unfold on Monday night? Yeah, um, just because I'm based in Saskatchewan, I've done a lot of work in, in Alberta as well. And I'm always interested in the prairies because it, it sometimes gets lost in, in, in the federal election. And, you know, Saskatchewan sent all conservatives uh, last time around. Um, but really, the NDP, it's really in Saskatchewan, really between the NDP and, and the conservatives. Ralph Goodale lost his seat last time in Regina, Wiscana. That was never really a liberal seat so much as it was in Ralph Goodale's seat. Um, but there's kind of three ridings in Saskatchewan, uh, Regina Leuven, uh, Saskatoon Centre, and then the northern riding of uh, Miss Nippy Churchill, uh, that have always kind of flipped back and, and forth between uh, Conservative uh, and a New Democrat. I, those, and they'll be close races. They, they always are. Uh, Edmonton Greaves, 
as well in uh, in, mm. in Alberta. I think is an interesting one with a really fabulous candidate, Blake uh, and Desjardins, who's you know that kind of we've got that a candidate that good and that kind of momentum and that we talk about kind of getting people out to the polls. And I think that this is where the NDP's got an advantage in terms of I feel like NDP voters are voting for something instead of voting against it. I think that they have a motivated vote this time, and that motivation can make the real difference in those tight races. Certainly can. Colin, uh, of course, uh, the Liberals going into this, the goal to get out of minority position, move into a majority. Um, They haven't really moved the needle that much in terms of where they started and where they're finishing this campaign. Uh, What are you watching for? Is that still the goal for the Liberals, or is it to try and hang on to the minority at this point? So I think the the you know the, the the party will be feeling good about we're not feeling good everyone is intense and everyone is uh feeling uh like they're pushing every button they can to get over the line in each of the parties um you know we have an internal uh polling model that we run at navigator that shows uh the liberals are, are still looking as though they're they're going to be returned with a minority um uh, the, the public available models that are out there are also showing a liberal victory. I think for me, what I want to see is uh, what, what is just mentioned, three rides that just been mentioned here in Alberta, uh, where liberals uh, stand a very, very good chance of of, uh, of being uh, of winning, and I think that would be you know a very different narrative for what has been a, a campaign where there's been a lot of um, you know from the opposition parties a lot of negativity towards the the Liberal Party around uh, their ability to win new ridings or to win uh, or to win back ridings. So a couple of ridings in Edmonton, uh, riding Calgary, Calgary Skyview. Uh, I think I'm watching to see what happens with each, with each of those, and then obviously. Um, you know, watching for the for the for the overall the overall breakdown and the overall uh, national result. Um, just gauging what we've seen in terms of interest, what do you guys think we can expect in terms of voter turnout? Are Canadians going to head out to the polls? Is the pandemic going to keep them away? What do you think we'll see in terms of Canadians responding, answering the call here? I think it's going to be a very low turnout, yeah. uh, unfortunately. Uh, just had an election two years ago. Obviously, COVID is, is a huge part of it, not only of kind of people's fears about going to a crowded polling station, but also kind of a, a general malaise and, and being focused on, on other things. Um, the other thing to think about um, is that I, I went through a, a COVID election, as it were, in, in Saskatchewan, and we might not even know on election night how things are breaking down. Uh, between the advance vote, yeah, the mail-in mail-ins. vote, and and when you have kind of things as close as they are in terms of party polling, uh, you know, you get 25 seats that aren't called on election night. Well, that can make the difference between, uh, you know, a minority and majority or who's whose minority yeah. it is. Uh, so, you know, it might be a real late night and actually a long week. <laughs> oh, let's hope not. Let's hope it's over. <laughs> Boy, can you imagine? Uh, Melissa, do you, you agree? Do you think that uh, turnout could be a little lackluster this time around? I agree. I think you're going to have people um, who are sort of, I don't want to say mainstream voters, but voters who are not really like on the fringes, maybe don't have um, a political um, party membership, which is, you know, the majority of Canadians. Um, I think they're just sort of disenchanted. You had a great interview earlier this week, Shay, with Tom Nichols, just talking about some of um, some of the sort of divisions happening in society yeah. and how there's all this polarization happening. I think people are frankly just sick of it in mm-hmm. many ways. People are over it. People who I talk, I love talking to people who don't pay attention to politics at all. I have a lot of friends who just are totally not involved and just asking them what they think of what's going on. 
they don't get it. They it's all you know, as we say in politics, inside baseball. A yeah. lot of the stuff that's happening, and so I think that people are just sort of thinking right now, like, what's the point? People may think that they don't have any good options because they, they just haven't looked into it. And like Sally said, it's been only two years. So I think we're probably going to see lower turnout. And yeah, I mean, in, in British Columbia, we saw as well. Like, it, we it was hard to know the results of some ridings. Um, so I mean, with with things as close as they are nationally, I wouldn't be surprised if we're we're, we're not knowing who forms government um, on on Monday evening. Oh boy. Okay. Well, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Melissa, Sally, Colin, I, I can't thank you guys enough for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Some great insights, and uh, enjoy Monday. We'll see what happens. Thanks so much. Thanks, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, that is Colin. Um, McDonald, who is a liberal strategist with Navigator. Also, Melissa Cowett, who is, no, Melissa is the conservative, I apologize. Sally, NDP, and Colin McDonald representing the liberal strategists. And uh, interesting discussion, and I think I don't disagree with a lot of what they had to say. I'm a little worried about what will happen if we don't actually get um, the vote counts in by Monday night. But there is a lot of mail-in ballots coming in, and there's going to be some really, really tight races. All right, a discussion now that uh, I think I've been trying to make the point. I don't make it as well as our next guest um, because this is a discussion that I think has sort of slipped past a lot of people in the frenzy to address climate change. We talk about reducing oil and gas use, right? Okay, well and good. Transitional economy. But while you're scaling that down, demand is continuing to increase and will for some time, depending on who you talk to. could be 10 years, could be 20 years before we reach peak demand. So when you're making it harder and harder and harder to actually access the oil and gas, especially in our part of the world, where is that increased demand going to come from? That is the topic of a piece by our next guest, who is Eric Nuttall. He's a partner and senior portfolio manager with Nine Point Partners LP. Eric, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Happy to be with you. So in your mind... We're sort of hurtling ourselves right into an energy crisis, right? Yeah, I think it's inevitable, and it, there's a few reasons for that, but it comes down to energy ignorance, meaning most people, frankly, don't u- understand how entrenched the usage of oil and hydrocarbons are in our lifetimes, and you know, most people think it's just for cars, and of course, we'll mm-hmm. be driving electric cars in a few years due to government policy, and yet when you step back and recognize just how much our lifestyles are completely dependent upon oil uh, use. The challenge that we're having is that government policy is trying to impact demand, which I think will be 15 to 20 years from now. And yet the uncertainties that that's causing in the investment community is having an impact today. And so the line that I use is the fear of peak demand is leading to the reality of peak supply. This worry about, well, what does demand look like 10, 15 years from now? It's having an immediate impact now. And so, yes, I do think that ultimately we will see all-time high oil prices in the next couple of years. Yeah, so when we take a look at it, let's just talk about peak demand for a second. You know, like I said, some people say 10 years, some people say 20, 39, depending on who you talk to. But regardless, it's, it's a ways out yet. So in terms of how much more production, where are they saying we're going to top out at? How far do we have to go before we actually get to peak demand? I think we're looking at about 15 years from now. Okay. Uh, you know, modeling that far out is next to impossible because of the, the number of variables. But a great um, a study that I referenced in the Financial Post article is done by Sanford Bernstein, a guy that I, whose work I really respect. And so they assumed, let's just assume we hit all government policies in terms of electric car traction, 
moderating the uh, demand for oil as economies grow, you know, recognizing that global populations are going to grow pretty meaningfully between now and 2050, hydrogen usage, et cetera. And he pointed to about 2034, 2035. But I think a key misunderstanding is, well, what happens when we do reach peak oil uh, demand? Does that mean the prices suddenly have to collapse? And when you think about it, the, the very clear answer to that uh, question is no, we can reach peak oil demand and yet the oil price can still go up. And that's kind of my base assumption because, again, if demand is falling but supply is falling faster, there's ongoing continued upward pricing pressure on uh, the price. And I just don't think that's a dynamic that people can easily wrap their heads around. You know, I think for a lot of people, even who are in support of the transition or, or whatever you want to call it, that transitional economy, there, there's a recognition among some people that, you know what, what you're talking about, uh, as much as you would like it to happen tomorrow, it simply can't. We're talking about decades out. So it seems to be there's a lot of neglect to that, that transitional period that both things need to work hand in hand if we aren't all going to suffer greatly. Just talk about some of the limitations that this rush to uh, a green world and a, a new climate change policy and all the rest of that stuff has put on what we do, especially here in, in this country, in terms of supplying world oil demand, because it really affects how we go about doing that business. Without question. And again, let's step back and say, how is oil used? And so 60% is transportation, 40% is non. And so when we look at the non-transportation, so we're talking about plastics, chemicals, lubricants, etc. Yes, we can all stop consuming plastic straws, but in the end of the day, Demand for 40% of total usage is driven by population growth and economic growth. And so unless we all are going to tremendously sacrifice our lifestyles, which is not a choice that will be made willingly, that segment of demand will continue to grow for the foreseeable future. When we think about transportation, you know, what are the alternatives? We know cars are about 27%. We know government policy is taking us in Canada towards full electric by about 2035 on new sales. Globally, there's over a billion cars to be displaced, and total electric car sales last year were 5 million. And so clearly, it's going to be ramping, but we're talking several decades before you displace usage there. Competing uh, sources would be like hydrogen, but we're talking, again, several decades. And so every alternative to oil that's feasible, we're talking about, you know, the 2030s, 2040. But what I see in front of me, again, is the lack of available capital from investors, the lack of willing capital from banks the inability of companies to invest enough because they, are, they have investors saying, well, geez, I, I don't know what demand is like in 10, 15 years. I need to get paid now. And so we're seeing companies prioritize uh, dividends and share buybacks over drilling. And so, you know, where is the incremental oil going to come from? It's challenged to, to answer that. OPEC, I think, is out of spare capacity by the end of next year. Uh, they've had the inability to invest as they've struggled with low oil prices and have to uh, satisfy uh, social spending, lest you know you get regime change and you end up hanging from a light post, uh, like happened to Gaddafi. And so, where else can supply come from? It's not coming from Canada, meaningfully, you know, incrementally. It's not coming from the super woke, you know, Eurocentric companies mm-hmm. like the Royal Dutch Shells and BP. They're actually allowing the production to fall to free up capital to invest in solar and wind, it's like terrible, terrible low margin businesses. And it's no longer coming from U.S. shale because investors are saying, we need to get paid now. You need to lower spending and increase dividends. And so it's, it's a real question. Like, I can, no person that spends more than two minutes thinking about this could come to the conclusion that demand is peaking anytime soon. 
And yet I would really, you know, posit the question, where exactly are the incremental barrels coming from? And so to wrap it up, the energy crisis is going to result in a high enough oil price to kill demand, which I think by extension will kill the global economy. That's another conversation. And so we're talking about an oil price that will, I think, eclipse the prior high. But Eric, I mean... It, it, will, it will kill demand, but at some point, that demand, you know, I mean, let's just talk about Canada, for example. That demand, it cannot be, I mean, we may have to pay through the nose to heat our homes, but we're going to have to pay through the nose to heat our homes. Some of these things are bedrock, and until the better way comes along, and like you say, it could be 2030, could be 2040, could be beyond that, um, that demand, you, you cannot eliminate it. It, it, it will persist. Without question. So the oil price will act as a governor on incremental you know, demand growth. You can't kill base, base demand. There's certain activities. As we experienced by COVID, like look at COVID. It was the biggest shock to the global economy in modern history. And yet for only a very short period of time, like we're talking days, if not weeks, total global oil demand maybe fell as much as 30% for a very short period. And so mm-hmm. like the entire global economy ground to a halt. And yet demand only dipped 30%. And so... You know, we look forward, and most people think that the, the U.S. economy, Canadian economy, global economy, et cetera, is going to be rebounding and continuing to rebound post-COVID. So, like, you know, if we go back to historical norms of 1 to 1.5 million barrels per day per year of incremental demand within two years, and I'm a guy who kind of does this for a living, I can't identify where those barrels are going to come from. And so if supply can't react to balance the market, then demand, incremental demand growth must, and the only way to impact that is through high enough oil prices where it's just simply too expensive not to heat our homes and not for base economic activity, but maybe you don't go on, you know, the, the trip because sure. the, the cost of airfare is too expensive, et cetera. That's where at the margin you'll have to kill. But again, we're talking at an oil price higher than $150 to get there. Um, last one. So what, the, the way I view it is sort of the reality is the reality. And like you say, the, the, the demand will persist. It will continue. The other one is the aspirational um, world of let's get rid of oil and gas and save the climate um it's really hard to push back against the aspirational goals of of that movement out there right now and you see um big oil you see banks as you mentioned all sort of saying okay we're going to play along and we're going to play by your rules of the game is there any discussion out there saying hey wait a minute take a look at what's happening here you're going to put yourself in a spot is there any way to push back against that and sort of just say hey here's a little reality yeah, and this isn't meant to sound like a climate denier because I am not, but we could, some could recognize that the, the conversation today has a religious overtone and you dare not challenge it. Yes. So has the pendulum swung so far that anybody is terrified to challenge you know, what has become the status quo and what has been accepted? I don't think most people would feel that they can freely have such an opinion. And, and by extension, then, I, I don't see there being enough support to fight against the, the narrative at this time. Eventually, reality is going to bite us in the, in the behind. You know, the, the, the cost, the lack of reliability, of power, uh, energy in general, you know, going from energy abundance to energy poverty, but we'll be dealing with that in five years from now. So, you know, my, my goal, my target really is to maximize upside capture for my investors from what I think is an inevitability for the oil price. Eric, uh, great discussion. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. 
My pleasure. That is uh, Eric Nuttall, who is a partner and senior portfolio manager with Nine Point Partners LP. And uh, yeah, you can read his, his column in the Financial Post. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.